Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts, and it's so lovely to be with you today. I was just thinking of a story that I wanted to share with you. You know, a few weeks ago, I found myself preparing to take my first airplane flight since COVID started. I don't know how I made it that long without actually getting on an airplane. It may have something to do with my intense dislike of air travel. But I started that trip by getting into a shuttle van here in Fort Collins that would take me to the airport in Denver. And I got in first, and then someone got in next to me and turned to me and started making conversations. She just introduced herself, started telling me about herself, asking me about myself. And um, I'd been planning to listen to a podcast on that ride, but I quickly switched gears and I was really enjoying my conversation with this person. We were finding all kinds of different connections, but I found myself doing something that I often do when I meet someone for the first time. I find a way to both be very authentic and truthful and real, and I try really hard not to reveal that I am a minister. And I think the reason I do this is I really want to avoid being put in all of the different boxes that people put clergy into or people put religious people into. You know, people do all kinds of different things. They'll overly apologize for cursing in front of me. They'll want to dive deep into theology when I'm trying to take a vacation. Uh, I mean, sometimes they'll share their heart with me or it will develop trust in some kind of beautiful way. But I find myself, once I've shared with somebody that I'm a minister, I'm often just trying to work my way out of boxes that I perceive to have been put in. And I think that our current worship series at Foothills really speaks to all of the challenges of thinking of oneself as a religious person. What does it mean to be a person who goes to church? What does it mean to be religious? Where do we get stuck with all of our old ideas or somebody else's ideas about what it means to go to church, to attend worship? to be somebody with a spiritual life, to be someone who is religious. And I will say this is something that I still, this is a place where I get stuck myself. Even though I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister, I've given my life to ministry and joyfully so, but there's still a part of me, I think, which is probably connected to my Jewish heritage that is still kind of uncomfortable with the word church sometimes. I can't help but to put someone else's connotations onto that or see it through someone else's lens. And so I think it's a practice really to claim and to reclaim being religious and traditional religious language and notions for ourselves. So we have a great podcast here for you today. First, we're going to hear from a longtime Foothills member, Cheryl Hazlitt, about her family history with religion and what it means to her to be religious today, which is something very different than what it meant in her childhood. 
And then we'll transition into a sermon from Reverend Gretchen called Losing and Finding Your Religion. And I really hope you stick with us through this series because I think it's a lot. There's a lot here for people who are new to Unitarian Universalism and new to Foothills. And there is a lot here for all of us. There is a lot here for every person who still grapples with what does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to be listening to this podcast right now? What does it mean to go to church, to have a spiritual life? Um, These are really fundamental questions, and they say a lot about who we are at Foothills. So let's dive in first to this conversation between Cheryl Hazlitt and Gretchen Haley. We lived at church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, and sometimes Saturdays. My dad was a Methodist minister, and it was more important to show up at church than it was to express how you really felt about things. As a little, little person, I loved a lot of parts of the church life because I loved vacation Bible school and the music and the activities and the crafts and all of those things. It was as I got older, I really started to have an internal uncomfortableness. And part of that was when I was a teenager, our youth group was asked to, we had a youth director and we were taken out to places in the community and to go and evangelize, to go witness to people at their front doors. And I did one and I felt so sick inside. I just felt sick inside because I was asking them what I thought were very personal things about who they were. And, you know, I didn't know anything about these people. And I was asking them about the relationship to this God who was supposed to be all knowing and all caring. In the midst of all of this, my mom was sick. She had been diagnosed with cancer when I was 13. She lived for 10 years with with cancer. But for the first five years, it was a secret. We couldn't tell people. I think there's a lot of wounding associated with that. And when she died, I was 22. My father and other church people kept praying for healing. God was going to heal her. And because I had been trained in sciences and biology, and I was like, God's not going to do anything or look at her body. I mean, I don't see that it's going to be like restored to wholeness. And so I think that was, that was where it really just clinched it for me, you know? And then I, I didn't say things. I didn't let people know what I was grappling with. And I had family members who would say, well, don't question your faith. You know, that's a slippery slope. So I kind of hit a point where I was like, well, I'm halfway down the slope. I might as well keep going. I left after my mom's death and moved to Colorado. And I was unchurched for 20 years. I didn't want to get pulled into something that I had to pretend that I could buy into. I would try going to church periodically, and I would end up just crying. It's like, well, this is not not working. And I think it really clinched for me when, you know, when you're in a service and there are prayers, and I thought, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm just a liar because I don't believe what this is anymore. And then 
after Tom and I had been married, we lost our first child. And I thought I need people because that was a very lonely loss. I actually visited Foothills pretty early in the 90s after we'd lost our daughter. And it wasn't a good experience. So I didn't go for a while. But then after we adopted both kids, I really was still yearning for that community. So I gave myself a deadline. I said, by the beginning of the new year, you need to go to this church and you need to try it four times. And <laughs> and the first, you know, it was a little, it was, but I will tell you, one of the first people to greet me and befriend me was Rick Gamina, took me in and greeted me and was so cordial and so welcoming. Then I met another woman and, and she said, you know, you want to help serve coffee? We could really use it and you can meet people. So that was one of the first ways that I came into fiddles. And I, of course, sat and cried. And my husband came with me and he sat and held my hand while I cried. But I, I decided it was a place that shared similar values with me. And there were people who had some similar wounds. Not all. But it was a place I felt like I could start to become more authentic, become more of myself. I was so reluctant to become a member because I had been coerced at every other church. But you know what happened? I think once I made that decision to say, I'm a member, I belong here, these are my people, it really changed my perspective from, um, I'm not someone here to just receive. I'm here to be part of this congregation, this body of people, to give, to serve, to be in the community, and and to find my gifts and make use of them. For me, who had always been forced to join a church, but never really knew what that meant or that it was something that should come from the heart, it was. It's been a big deal. It's been a big deal. I'm religious, but not in the way you want to think of you. I've had somebody say, well, do you believe in God? And I'd say, well, my God is not in any kind of box. My religion is not in this defined box. It's bigger. It's, it's, it's just huge. And it's ever-growing and ever-encompassing because there's so much in this world and with each other we don't know about. So am I religious in that I look for strength from my faith and my beliefs? Yes, I'm religious in that respect. Am I religious in terms of do I follow a dogma or a certain belief structure? Not, not the way most churches do. Going through Wellspring, and I've done the, the three different types of courses, the sources where you learn about being Unitarian, Universalism, Wellspring 2, which is a deeper dive, and then this last year, Braining Sweetgrass. But I, I think one of the most valuable things for me was learning to sit quietly and calmly and listen to others' perspectives and stories and tell my own. And <clears throat> to to practice just being with people and not having to do, perform, 
show, just being together. I brought that home into my own life that I don't always have to do perform. Sometimes it's, it's good to be, to just sit, to, to be more calm and quiet early in our lives. We're caught up in how much we can achieve, how fast we can get things accomplished, how good our family looks, if we're saved or not. And at this point in time, I'm kind of in a different place where it's like, you know, let it go. Just let it go because who you are and what you bring to the world is is more important than all the trappings. I think I, I'm a lot more accepting and forgiving of others. And, you know, it's it's also made me look at I can be really, I've had always had really high expectations for myself. So I put those on my family and my family is it's like, they're not who I want them to be. They are who they are. And so I think I'm at this place now. It's like, how, how do I appreciate and, and revel in that rather than my vision of what I thought they should be? What you've just said is one of my my hopes for how what religion can do for us to let us love the world we have and to to learn how to love the life we have, which is you know a lifelong journey. But I think that's what we're most called to do is is to learn how to love life as it is and to hold the tensions and the grief and the pain and the loss and to meet it with love. So. It's beautiful to hear you describe it like that. I, I love what you just said because it, I mean, what else is there? It was 2007 when I could keep it in no longer. I had avoided the issue long enough. I downplayed my feelings, guarded my intuition. I'd kept, kept a lot of my favorite things, even my friendships on the down low. But I couldn't hide it anymore from myself or from the world. One Sunday late that year, a few months after I started seminary, I preached a sermon and officially came out as religious. I called the sermon the Scarlet R. In some ways, coming out as religious was more difficult for me than coming out as queer. In the circles I run in, being religious carries more baggage and causes more confusion than any term about sexuality might. So much so that I could be finishing my first semester in seminary and still not be convinced that I was a religious person. I was like, I mean, I guess I might be religious since I'm in seminary. Kind of like I might be religious if I gather with others on Sunday morning, kindle a flame, sing hymns, sit in silence and in gratitude, I might be, or you might be. 
Now you'll notice when I described my hesitancy to come out as religious, I told you how I assumed other people would react. But like with sexuality, what I've realized about religious identity is that the real demon to confront is in here. I mean, it's mostly about you, me, our own fears and prejudices, your own sense about what sort of person you are, your limitations of imagination, I mean, your own stereotypes. I'm not one of those kind of people, you might say, or I might say. I mean, I remember the first time that I, rem I read the Bible in public, I was like, <laughs> I mean, it was like I was reading pornography or something, except I think I was even more embarrassed to be reading the Bible. Despite what the Supreme Court might have you believe, more and more people in the last few decades have come to share my reluctance to claim a religious identity. Anecdotally, what I see at Foothills in our newcomers is that we have two main sorts of people starting to show up in, in the last few years. The first are those who were raised in religions that they ended up leaving, like Cheryl's story. They're, these are mostly people who are Gen X, uh, boomers, silent generation, as in over 40 or so. Not all of them, but mostly. Um, many in this group do carry wounds from those experiences, as Cheryl described. And others, some, arrive having been a member at another Unitarian Universalist congregation where they've done some work to claim a new religious identity. And then, so that's the first group, and then you've got the second group. These are people who've had zero prior experience in a religious community. They tend to be younger, like under 40, millennials, Gen Z, but again, not exclusively. There's some who are older who also have zero religious uh, community experience. They also tend to have a generally negative experience about a certain sort of Christianity or church people generally, but they're more neutral about any particular religious practice or word or concept. Mostly because these practices and ideas and words, they're not attached for them to any meaning or context. It's more like the they're experiencing more like what you experience when you have to uh, learn about a new culture or a new language in that it's not really good or bad. It's just, it's just neutral. It's just new. There is, of course, a small yet mighty minority of folks who arrive here having been raised Unitarian Universalists, either here, as in returning as adults to Foothills, or they were raised UU in another congregation. This group most often aligns with the second category, those who had no religious experience, except for they also come with an added layer of confusion or irritation with those of us who show up in their religious home and then spend our time debating whether or not it is actually a religion. I mean, have you seen lately the mural in the basement of Foothills Religious Education Building? Um, I mean, if you haven't, I just encourage you to try to check it out sometime because we send our children there 
and sometimes our adults for um, small groups, but we send them there and as they, they walk down the hallway, they will encounter people, many people who risked their whole lives for the sake of their religious faith, including at the far end, beginning end, whichever way you walk, you find Unitarian Michael Servetus, who was burned at the stake in the 16th century. It's literally a portrayal of him being burned at the stake because he didn't believe in the Trinity. Meanwhile, they hear most of their church being all, but we're not really a religion, right? You can see how they might be confused slash irritated. Anyway, my anecdotal trends tend to match with what the most recent studies are showing from the Pew Research Center, which just last year described that three out of 10, almost 30% of Americans now identify as having no religious affiliation at all. With 40%, four out of 10 millennials, identifying as not having any religious affiliation, that's a 13% increase in the last 10 years. There are all sorts of reasons why people have left institutional religion. When people are asked, they, they tend to talk about a few different things, including most obvious one, that they've had a change in beliefs. That is that slippery slope that Cheryl was warned about. Or they might also talk about not agreeing with the church's stance on LGBTQ people or their, how the church treats women. But just as often people will talk about a disillusionment with the idea of organized religion itself, whether due to abuse and cover-ups revealed in the last few decades, or a more generic sense of corruption people feel exists in the institutional church, many people have lost faith in the idea of church. This skepticism about religion shows up in almost every new arrival who shows up in our community, even those with no church background at all. And sometimes the skepticism hangs on in a person for years after someone has been coming regularly, participating fully, even when they feel like they seem to me so clearly in. Cheryl shared a little about her reluctance to becoming an official member how long it took her to decide to sign the book, become an, say that she belonged. But what she didn't and most of you all don't realize when you are in that state is that this is a community filled with people who, are, who feel a very similar tension. A whole church filled with people who aren't sure that they are church people. When the song Losing My Religion came out my sophomore year in high school, my best friend Heather and I used to listen to it on repeat on my little pink cassette player. It was a, like a mini boom box. We loved the tortured mandolin sounds and the very cool lead singer Michael Stipe. And we happily obliged MTV's constant replaying of his video basically once every hour, four months. <laughs> Most of all, we were very proud to tell anyone who would listen that we knew the true meaning of the song's title, which was not actually about religion, did you know? Losing my religion is a Southern phrase. That means being at the end of your rope, as in being totally lost.
disoriented and disenchanted, so lost that you would lose, lose your religion, lose your faith in God. Now, the experience of literally losing your religion is quite like this, actually. It happens for most people gradually and then suddenly. Even if the experience is ultimately liberating and life-saving, it is almost always also painful as it involves the loss of a community, identity, anchoring rituals and practices, which also means it often includes grief and anger. Sometimes it also includes losing your family and your closest friends, your sense of yourself. People come to Unitarian Universalist congregations, both hoping to heal from this kind of loss and also clinging to it as a kind of stand-in for the identity their religion used to give them, which is how it can happen that people can continue to identify as non-religious, even while also regularly attending church or serving in a church, singing in the choir, sending their kids to religious education programs, and participating in small groups. Continuing to understand yourself as non-religious, as not a church person, provides an incredible armor, a protective device, if you will, Because to let go of your non-religious identity is to risk being rejected and lost in all the same ways all over again. It's just that not letting go of your non-religious identity is also a way to make sure that that healing you come seeking never fully happens. Or that the gift is never fully received. In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear talks about the ways that at our deepest levels, our habits are connected to our sense of our identity. He gives an example of smoking, of trying to quit smoking. How often he says that someone who is trying to stop smoking will say, I'm trying to quit, which seems obvious and reasonable. But behind that statement, he says, is often still a self-understanding that I'm a smoker who's trying to quit. He suggests that instead of saying, I'm trying to quit, a person should say to themselves, I'm not a smoker. I'm a non-smoker. So that the work is to change your identity, your self-understanding, which in turn helps shape your habits. But I've wondered how it works in reverse. As in, if you never really change your identity, but you do take up those new habits, will those habits affect you at a deeper level? I mean, is there a point where no matter how often you show up at church or participate in the practices of church, if we aren't willing to let these practices correspond with a deeper shift in how we understand ourselves, then it seems likely that we are holding the community and its its real possibility for impact and change at arm's length. This possibility, this reality, came crashing down on me as I was finishing up my first year in seminary when I was serving as a chaplain intern at the Denver Women's uh, Prison. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but it's a good one, so it bears repeating. 
Now how church happened at the women's prison is that every Friday night we would gather for worship, which I quickly learned meant gathering around a CD player that was blasting what some call Jesus is my boyfriend music. Maybe you're familiar with it. So this music would fill the room and the women would sing along and with all their hearts, they would, they would raise, let's see if I can do it. They would raise their arms and they would just sing along, closing their eyes. And they would say, sing Jesus, Jesus. At least this was my initial impression. And I, on the other hand, would be standing in the back with my arms firmly crossed, hoping to communicate to anyone who looked my way that this was not my thing. After all, I was, I was not religious. More than feeling just like personally uncomfortable, I was also feeling kind of embarrassed for the women and all this like cheesy superficial theology that they had somehow been tricked into embracing. And from this distance and defended place. I just watched. My stance in the back of the room was like my own little force field that had me thinking a lot about systems of oppression, economic injustice, generational poverty, etc., etc., and therefore protected my body, my heart, my mind from any deeper personalized engagement with the life that was in the room. But then, between each worship service, the women would come, they would they would make appointments with me or I would just see them in the hall or in the, when they would come to the chaplain's office and they would talk with me. And I started to get to know them. Arms unfolded. I heard their stories of greater loss than I could even fathom, more struggle than you'd think one person could manage to endure. And then Friday night would come again and they'd sing and they'd cry and then they'd laugh together and they'd release from their bodies just a little bit of the stories that I knew lived there. So one Friday night I was standing there and this, I was like in my posture and this song came on. It was change my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. Make it be like you. And suddenly, right then, it just, it just hit me. I mean, it hit me. Who should really be embarrassed in that room? And in case it's not clear, it was not the women singing and swaying. In that moment, it, it hit me that the words, the words of the song, it didn't matter. The theology, like the Jesus as my boyfriend, humanized father, God-centered as it was, none of it really even mattered because the room was filled with life. The room was filled with life and there was just one person in that room who was refusing to engage with that life, embodied there in this fellowship of women, singing about the possibility of healing and goodness and forgiveness and transformation. And so I started singing, change my heart, oh God. I stepped in like a little bit closer. 
And I started singing louder, make it ever true. Okay, yes, I was still obviously totally uncomfortable, but I was kind of leaning into my discomfort, learning from it, letting it, like Cheryl said, I was letting it just, just be. Change my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, make it be like you. Actually, it wasn't just uncomfortable, it was also terrifying. To let down my defenses like that, to invite these words into my mouth without clarifying what I did or did not actually believe, to sing with full voice about Jesus and how I I believe in him, his love for me, how it saves me. It was terrifying to give in to the experience knowing that I too had experienced pain and shame beyond what I was willing to name or claim. It was terrifying just, just to be present in the midst of all of that discomfort, in the midst of all of that love. It was terrifying and it was transforming. After that night, I could receive more people more fully. I could be with more people more fully and I could love the world more fully, receive love more fully. This is, as Cheryl said, my understanding as what, of what is possible when, when religion is at its best. When Unitarian Universalist Church is doing what we are called to do and when, and when we are being who we are called to be, that is when we let down that protective armor and let life simply be, to receive it all, arms unfolded, and to meet everything with love. In a world where church people religious people have done so much damage, are doing so much damage and bring so much death. It makes sense why we would all continue to be skeptical of proudly wearing the scarlet R. Our, our caution is warranted, maybe even ethical. But it is that same world that needs Unitarian Universalists who understand ourselves and what we are up to in our congregation with a deeper seriousness and a greater commitment, a religious commitment that orients us at our deepest and most unshakable levels. Our world needs us to let down our armor and declare ourselves proudly and clearly church people showing up religiously with an open heart and an open mind, ready to partner with the work of courageous love wherever and however it calls us ever on. Change my heart, oh love, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh love, make it be like you. Amen. Thank you, Gretchen, for such a beautiful message.
And thank you, dear listener, for joining me today. As our time together comes to a close, as we move on out into our lives, whatever we encounter, may we meet it with open arms and an open heart. Let's go out and love the world in all of its beauty and brokenness and possibility with all our hearts. Thank you so much for making time to join us for this week's episode of the Foothills Deeper Pod. It's always such a pleasure to be with you. If you have a moment, it would mean so much to us if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. This really does help people discover the show. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions that we're wrestling with over here, please send them the podcast link, spread the word, and thank you again so much for listening. I'm so glad that you joined us. Every 